Church, you may be seated, and if you have not already, turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. That'll be our primary text that Bradley just read so eloquently. Thank you, Bradley, and thank you, Manny and Sarah, for leading us today. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and we're continuing to consider uh, Jesus' sermon, popularly known as uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in uh, this summer. And it strikes me as I read this uh, passage that reminded me about whenever a tragedy or crisis happens, and people hop on social media, right, as we're uh, prevalent that we do. It's one of the places, primary places that we discover and even react to national and global tragedies, headlines of suffering, violence, injustice uh, in particular. And inevitably amidst the updates, details, uh, there are these comments, there are condolences, but there's a particular comment that uh, has become, in, in essence, part of the modern landscape of how we deal with a tragedy. And I'm, you know, like, or likely have heard it countless times before that it's simply become part of the landscape. And simply this, thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. And of course, this response has come under significant scrutiny. In fact, the more it shows up, the more it is scrutinized. Comedian uh, Anthony Jeselnik perhaps most aptly summarizes our sort of collective disdain for this idea. After the shooting in Aurora, Colorado in 2012, after the Boston uh, Marathon uh, bombing in 2013, no, you are not giving, he says, effing nothing, effing less than nothing. You are not giving your time, your money, or your, even your compassion. All you are saying is don't forget about me. Perhaps you've heard him say this. But what Jaselnik and others, I think, are pointing out is really important. See, because in that room, as always, it's a comedy show, so people laugh. But it's that awkward laugh that you've actually got to deal with the cutting truth of it as well. See, we often speak about prayer, don't we, with a kind of sentimental flippancy, which not only devalues people, but I also think devalues prayer. It devalues people and it devalues prayer. See, our issue ultimately isn't prayer. It isn't even with prayer, but with the heart behind that kind of sentiment, which is vain and empty. See, after all, how many of us or how many of those who say this on Twitter, Instagram, or threads, right, because that's the new thing, whatever it is or whoever is saying it, are they really praying? Do they tweet that and then go, all right, I'm going to take the next 15 minutes to make sure I'm living authentically with my Twittersphere comment, right? No. And even if they do pray, are they really understanding? Do we really understand the purpose and power of prayer in the midst of a national crisis or even in the middle of an individual or personal crisis? See, I think Jesus wants his disciples to pray and understand prayer. So that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about prayer Something that perhaps in the spiritual uh, environment is simply part of the tapestry, part of the furniture of our spiritual faith. But have we ever taken time to consider what exactly is prayer and what is it for? In fact, Jesus begins today highlighting in our passage by critiquing the same thing that I think we desire to critique today. The same impulse you and I have when we read that update or hear that comment I think Jesus is critiquing today those empty and vain prayers. However, unlike our critique, and I think unlike Jaselnik's critique, Jesus' critique comes with a remedy. 
In other words, I think what we'll see is that Jesus exposes us through his instructions on prayer, but he also heals us. He exposes us in his instruction, but he also brings healing. We'll see that prayer was never meant to be a meaningless sentiment, just something we throw out to make ourselves or perhaps others feel better, but a powerful participation, rather, in the inbreaking of Jesus' kingdom. This is how Jesus frames prayer. This is how we get involved, as it were, in his kingdom project. Here's how we'll organize our time together. We'll look at the cautions for prayer, healing through prayer, and then finally the integrity of prayer. So we'll look at two cautions for prayer. We'll look at his prayer and see healing through prayer. And then finally, most briefly, we'll consider the integrity of prayer. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we'll understand And so, so why would we as adult human beings, perhaps many of us who have been tracking with Jesus for a long time, why should we consider something so fundamental? And yet it seems that throughout the ministry of your son on earth, and here in particular, he wanted us to see and understand um, and embrace a vision of prayer and understanding and practice of prayer that is often really vacant, I know in my heart and perhaps in others as well. And so we pray that you would expose lies that we believe, expose motivations that we have even in prayer, or just bad habits we've picked up along the way. And as you expose and bring those things into the light, would you heal and transform and give us uh, right thinking and right living that ultimately would be empowered by your spirit and bring glory and honor to you. That's our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as always, we have to keep in mind a particular context, Jesus' instruction Uh, comes in. It's found within three spiritual disciplines, or a set of three different spiritual disciplines that um, began at the beginning of chapter 6, and will continue on in these first three movements in this chapter in Matthew chapter 6. Aaron covered uh, giving last week, but he looked at giving, and then today we'll look at prayer, and then next week we'll look at fasting. So these three different spiritual disciplines. And as Jesus did through chapter 5, what he's doing with each of these practices is making sure that they are framed or that we understand them as it relates to our heart or our motivation. So in other words, we shouldn't walk away from these three movements and go, man, I need to give more, I need to pray more, I need to fast more. If that's true, great, but that's not the main point. The main point is not have you um, quantified what you need to do as a result of Jesus' sermon, but have you understood the motivation or the heart behind giving, behind praying, and behind fasting? In other words, he's reframing righteousness around the heart. He's saying simply performing the task does not mean that you have practiced righteousness. And that's really frustrating, isn't it? I would love to be able to look at my journal and go, nailed it nailed it, nailed it, or I got to polish that up a little bit. I've got to do, it's way easier and a lot more clear, isn't it? If I've prayed today, I can check it off the list. But have I worshiped today? Have I centered my life on him? In giving, am I trying to demonstrate my righteousness or is it out of worship and thankfulness? That takes a lot more time. And in fact, it takes community, doesn't it? We have to live in such a way with each other that when religion becomes simply this rote practice of things that I've done or haven't done, I can do that myself. I don't need anybody else. But when I have to test my heart and understand what are the motivations, I need help. We need his word. We need his spirit. We need each other. Right? See, giving isn't really about giving. It's about your heart. Uh, Fasting is not going to be about fasting. It's going to be about your heart. And so today, praying is not really about praying. It's about your heart. That's where Jesus begins with prayer. 
he gives us two cautions, if you will, which expose the same issue within our heart. Let's look at the first one. Look at Matthew 5, rather Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like this, that they may be speaking to his disciples. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, remember he's speaking to his disciples, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. As before, what Jesus is doing is he's juxtaposing this kingdom being, this way of being that he desires for his disciples to live and to model and embody with this way of being that the Gentiles have or who he calls hypocrites. See, apparently it was customary for the religious class in Jesus' day to pray in synagogues or houses of worship and on street corners, like in the marketplace, like at the farmer's market in Logan Square, that kind of context. And at first blush, this may seem really noble. In fact, Jesus even says, they love to pray. They love doing this. You're like, don't throw shade on these guys. They're doing what they love. They love praying. That's probably their spiritual gift. That's a good thing, right? Well, upon further investigation, it's clear that their love for, for prayer has exposed or is exposing a deeper love that they have for themselves. A deeper love that they have for themselves. They love not prayer or the one to whom they are praying. Jesus says they love what prayer gives them. And what is it? attention. Attention. You see, it's not as easy as saying, did they pray today? Yeah, they prayed. But Jesus is saying, yeah, but they're doing it so that you will know that they are doing it, so that they, you will see them doing it, so that you'll think some kind of way about them. Notice they pray in church and out in the public. Why? What does Jesus say? That they may be seen by others. In other words, they're more concerned about looking holy than actually becoming holy. They're more concerned about looking holy and about becoming holy. The first caution then is that we shouldn't pray in what Jesus calls vain prayers. We shouldn't pray vain prayers. We shouldn't pray to look good or to be seen in a particular way. And in fact, perhaps for many of us, we shouldn't not pray in order to be seen or viewed in a particular way by people. Our prayer life is not meant to broadcast our preferred personality traits. Prayer is about something so much more than that. See, however, not because we don't look good. In fact, when we pray, we will look good. See, Jesus isn't saying, don't do that because you're going to look bad. It's going to work. People are going to look and go, whoa, did you hear that person? But they, they actually pray in public. That's wild. They go in front of people and speak out loud and they hear them. It's incredible. They must have so much faith. Jesus says, actually, people will notice you and they will be impressed. It will work. Notice Jesus says what? They will receive a reward. You'll get it. If you want a reward for praying in public, it'll work. We'll all think you're very impressive. You'll think I'm very impressive. This, this will work. You'll be impressed by our courage, our faithfulness, our piety, but Jesus says there's a cost. There's a cost. Jesus says when we pray to be seen, God won't hear us. He won't give us the reward, but people will. It's like one of my old seminary professors used to say, you only get paid once, and you get to decide how. Courage, as Jesus does. This isn't dismissing public prayer. There are many times called for public prayer. Throughout the scriptures, we see God's people praying in public. In fact, Daniel himself, the reason he gets thrown into the lion's den is because he prays in public because God told him to do that. See, the issue is not simply about the location. What, what, that Jesus is not dismissing public prayer. What's he doing? He's correcting selfish motivations. 
Now you may say, well, this doesn't really apply to me because I never want to pray in public. <laughs> so I'm good. Next point, please. But do we still pray with selfish motivations? This is what Jesus, he's after the heart. See, if being seen causes you to be proud or prideful, Jesus is saying what? Go where you can't be seen. Remove the distraction. Remove the distraction. Seek solitude. But Jesus isn't just concerned about the location, or the location isn't the only thing that exposes our hearts in prayer, but also the content. Look at verse 7. We'll see a second caution. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Again, Jesus compares his disciples with hypocrites. And in this case, he says that some people are prone to pray, pray with big and eloquent words, yet their words have no meaning. He calls them what? Empty phrases. That word in the original language really means to babble. They're just babbling. Preachers do this all the time. I know I am guilty of this. In my mind, I think this sometimes in my small group, when I'm closing in prayer, I got to hit all members of the Trinity. I got to say something about the Father, something about the Son, something about the Spirit. I got to make sure to pray off because they'll be hurt if I don't, right? And you start thinking just about the people in the room and I'm like, oh, I'm talking to the God of the universe. Perhaps I should keep that in mind as well and not just make sure all of my words sound right to the people in the room. I know I'm guilty of this. See, people believed that the longer that they prayed, and the more impressive their words, the more likely that God would actually hear them. They thought this was sort of like the Rubik's Cube. This was, this was the code that they had to break in order to get God's attention. I don't know if you have one of those things. I know that I do, that I have to pray in a particular way. Then God will hear me. The particular posture, with a particular vocabulary, with a particular, I have to make sure that I quote scripture when I pray, or something like this. In other words, that I have to get God's attention with the exact right combination of words. But this is also an errant thought. Why? Because it supposes that the power of prayer is in our character and in our performance rather than in God's love and his goodness. When we begin to do this, this is what's being exposed in my heart and yours, is that I believe that God hears me because of me and not because of him. Because of what I'm like, not because of what he is like. In other words, it's, easier, it's easy to pay closer attention to how we sound than who we're talking to. That's the second caution. We shouldn't pray empty. God listens to you. What do you have to do in your heart or mind, perhaps silently or maybe even out loud, to get his attention? See, in both cautions, I think it exposes a wounded heart. You see, we pray to look good when our hearts believe ultimately that we're really bad. We're trying to cover it with the right phraseology or the right kind of words. We pray to sound good when our hearts are convinced that God is not even good. And so we put up this religious exterior to seem holy, to seem impressive, to seem like we're healed when deep down we know that we are wounded. See, a wounded heart is tempted often to pray to heal itself. We know that we are wounded. We use religious practices, spiritual disciplines like prayer in order to believe that we can heal ourselves. This completely then subverts the power and the purpose of prayer. See, prayer is not the place to broadcast our righteousness, is what Jesus is saying, but rather the place we seek for wholeness and forgiveness and healing. In other words, prayer is the way that we receive the righteousness of God, not broadcast that we've already got it. That's really good news for my soul. That means I can come to him no matter what. 
that I can come to him with, you know, all kinds of crazy words that don't make any sense. I can come to him not with Babel in order to be heard, but with Babel because trying to figure out what's going on, to seek his will, to seek his shalom. See, what these cautions, I think, reveal is that we've misunderstood prayer. I know that I have. Dr. Tim Keller explains in his book On Prayer that the power of our prayers, he says, lies not primarily in our effort and striving or in any technique, but rather in our knowledge of God. We might say that prayer is for us, but prayer is not about us. Prayer is for us, but prayer is not about us, which is really good news. That means that when we pray, we can confess our woundedness rather than using prayer to cover our woundedness rather than using prayer as a shelter from the pain, we can seek prayer as a way to be exposed or to allow the healing work of Jesus to take hold of our lives. This seems to be the foundation of Jesus' teaching on prayer. And then he moves into the actual content of the prayer. He begins to give instruction. So we, yet, <laughs> I think we have to be really careful when Jesus now gets to the content and says, you know, the Our Father, that many of us perhaps grew up reciting in our different spiritual contexts, or perhaps this is the first time that you're hearing it. But we have to be really careful. See, we should keep in mind that Jesus has just critiqued an approach to prayer that is rote and fraught with errant motivations and an attempt to look or sound a certain kind of way rather than being honest and being a certain kind of way and being with someone. See, if we're not careful, we can exchange whatever we've just realized is bad and just go, now I just got to memorize this prayer and activate it. And every time I'm praying alone in my room, I'm just going to say this and not anything else. That's not the point, right? Isn't it so easy in a religious heart to just trade one bad thing for one thing we think is better? And all we're doing with an unchanged heart is just changing out one manner of righteousness for the other. See, many have traded out the hypocrisy, one empty ritual for another. See, simply our hearts. I have to be really careful. One empty ritual for another. See, simply reading and memorizing or following the order of this prayer does not heal your heart. It's another band-aid. Jesus is not teaching us a new law. He's not teaching us a new prayer that this is the thing you say in public or this is the thing you say in secret or giving us new words to our babble. See, the content of our prayer was never actually the issue. The heart of prayer was the problem. And so instead of giving us a new prayer, Jesus is showing us the real and living God. That's the main thing he's doing here. He's not giving you new words to pray. He's giving you a new place to look. He's giving a different place for your attention. Instead of seeking attention for, through prayer, we give our attention to God in prayer. So let's read this entire prayer, and then we'll make some observations along the way and see what Jesus has to teach us about his Father. Verse 9 through 13. Pray then like this, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, so how does Jesus point us to God? I think each of these movements, if you will, in his prayer expose something again and it also heals it. It exposes something and it heals it. The first thing that he says is he says, our, our Father. In other words, God is ours. This exposes how often I think, I know I depersonalize God. He is a power. He is a force. He can give me things, but it depersonalizes God, meaning he is more of an idea to us than someone with whom we are in relationship. You see how it exposes that and also brings healing to it? 
In fact, he promised through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. He said, I'll be yours. He'll be ours. The very invitation and instruction to pray demonstrates that we are in relationship with the God of the universe. And so this begins to do a work in our hearts. It exposes how often we depersonalize God and then gives us this reminder that we're actually in relationship with him. It's very personal. But not just in relationship, a particular kind of relationship. Still in verse 9, he says, our what? Father. God is Father. And the fatherhood of God, I think, exposes a deep distrust and mistreatment and even fear of relating to God as a parent. Because after all, talking about God as Father is less about God's masculinity. Jesus is a man, but God's fatherhood is not about his gender. It's about his personal embodiment of the one who provides, who has authority, who has control, and more than anything else, loves. Think think about this, that the way that Jesus teaches us to pray is a way of relating to God through love and care, through personal relationship. And that's the wound, isn't it? Many of us have terrible earthly parents. They're the ones who have caused many of our wounds, father and person. And even if we've had good parents, sometimes we venerate them so much that it is hard to call someone else father or someone else parent. Someone who abused their authority, someone who did not love us well, often changes the way we even relate to the entire concept of parenthood or fatherhood in particular. See, prayer then becomes this place, not where we hide those wounds, but an intimate place where we allow the Heavenly Father to address them, speak to them, and heal them, even as we recall that the Heavenly Father is the one who oversees us with complete power, but also complete love and gentleness. Prayer is then the place where this wound can be healed. He's also in heaven. So he's our, and he's also our Father, and Jesus says he's in heaven Often we are bound up in simply in what this world can provide, what's possible within this world. See, much about what we worry about is focused on our ability, on trends, on likelihoods, and what makes good logical sense. But the healing power of prayer strips away fleshly limitations. It strips away only what is possible within our concept, within our science, within our logic, within our worldview. See, when we open ourselves up to God, we are opening ourselves and the problems we face in humanity to the limitless capacities of heaven. This is what drives us to prayer. It sets our attention away from what is earthly and to what is heavenly. This tells us that God knows everything, yes, but also he can do anything. See, when Abraham and Sarah... They were utterly baffled. God came came to them both almost 100 years old, and he's like, y'all are going to have babies. They're like, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. And then God comes back with this wonderful retort. He simply asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The way I live my life, I often answer that, yeah, there's a lot of things that seem really hard for you because it's not working out very well right now. And what prayer does, prayer teaches me to get back into this space where he demonstrates and proves and shows that I am on earth and he is in heaven. He has a resource, cattle on a thousand hills that will pale in comparison to my knowledge and understanding. Not only so, but God is holy. Still in verse 9, Jesus says, hallowed be your name. 
That word hallowed means sanctified or revered or holy. God is holy. And whenever we are in the company of holiness, sinfulness gets exposed. See, when Isaiah had a vision of God's holiness and he steps into his present, here's how he responds. Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He thought he was going to die. Isaiah thought that if I'm in the presence of the Lord for too long, he's going to utterly destroy me because of all this sin, and yet he doesn't. And here comes the healing. Rather, an angel cleanses him and extends God's forgiveness, sinfulness, and we also, therefore, get to experience his grace, which makes us holy. And this is often what we do not experience in our communities, in our spiritual families. And this is what I believe the Lord is doing a great work at church in the square, that we're meant to emulate this wonderful blend of holiness and grace, that this should neither just be a place where your sin is cast aside and we don't consider it, We ignore brokenness and a need for healing, but in giving it our attention through holiness, we also extend love. This is what God does for us in the midst of prayer. And I think the more that we are in prayer and the more we experience his holiness and his grace, the more that shapes us and that's the more we actually live that way in community. God's kingdom is also coming in verse 10. There is a realm that Jesus has been describing through the sermon, and he calls it the kingdom. The kingdom is really shorthand for the rule and reign of God, for his will and his way. And this too exposes us. Why? Because we're all about our own kingdoms. And so when we're taught to pray, your kingdom come, what am I saying? May mine not. Your will be done, may mine not be done. I don't like that prayer. That's a hard prayer because I have to confess that I've got a will and I've got a way, and it's not going to work out. It's not going to be good for me. It's not going to lead to the flourishing of my family or of my community. It exposes us. We're focused on what we want. And this prayer then, the way that Jesus is teaching us to pray, not about the words in particular, about the disposition of my heart, is that instead of centering us, it corrects us. It transforms us to be people about his will. Not only are we healed by seeing the kingdom as the true and better and already but not yet reality, but we are also healed by Jesus' invitation to actually participate in the progressive arrival of this kingdom. So the challenging thing is that his will is going to be done, not yours. But the good news is you get to participate in it. You get to join it. You get to be a part of it. You get to be about it. So we confess our kingdoms even as Jesus destroys those kingdoms, we see them crumble and we see his kingdom begin to bear witness and begin to take hold of this world. That's what we truly desire in the midst of prayer. And I think one of the beautiful things about prayer is, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm living my life and I think I'm about Jesus' kingdom and then I get into prayer and he's like, that's not me. That's not, that's not what I'm about. That's more about you. That's more about your ego. That's more about your pride. That's more about a conflation of your identity in the church. And I need you to pull those apart because this is not your church. This is mine. See, that work of even discerning, is this my kingdom or is this the Lord's kingdom, takes place in the midst of our prayer life. Not only so, in verse 11, we learn that God provides for us. So God is ours. God is Father. God is in heaven. God is holy. God's kingdom is coming, and God provides for us. Now, asking God for daily bread is kind of a wild prayer in this day and age. It's really humbling, actually, because I think it exposes that many of us don't live paycheck to paycheck, and we certainly don't live from day to day, many of us. Therefore, we are used to believing that we provide our own monthly and even annual bread. 2025, I'm good now. And what's that doing? It's exposing that we actually really 
are the ones we believe provide for ourselves. However, there's even more. At this point in the prayer, it's important to acknowledge the plurality of the language and the plural form in which Jesus has been praying. See, God is not your father. God is not my father. God is our father. We're praying actually not for my daily bread, and you're not praying for your daily bread. What are we praying? Our daily bread. That's exposing too. Just this week I had to contend with that. How easy it is for me to pray for mine, and once I've prayed for mine and see it, I don't pray that prayer anymore. I don't look to my brothers and sisters. I don't look to my community. Theologian Justo Gonzalez explains, when we, are, when we ask for our daily bread, we are not asking only for ourselves, nor even for our sisters and brothers in the church, but for the entire human race, even those who may not know our Lord. In other words, we daily pray this kind of prayer or long to see the Lord not just meet our needs, but the needs of every image bearer who calls this planet home. That's the kingdom. See, your prayers are not simply yours, and my prayers are not simply for me. Christian prayer is a communal connection with God, and in this case, a collective request for his provision. The very fact that very fact begins to heal us from the wounds of individualism, isolation, and self-centeredness. See, in this prevailing culture, we believe that a kind of personal autonomy and individualism and isolation and self-assurity, that that actually is wholeness. That's evidence of our healing. What the scriptures say, if you only depend on you, that's revealing your need for healing because you're never meant to be alone. I was never meant to be alone. See, we've been spiritually gaslit by Satan in this particular culture, in this particular cultural moment, to, to believe that the more you can function by yourself, the more healthy of a human you are. What the gospel says is the more connected you are with your brothers and sisters and with the entirety of those who bear his image, the more healed you are. The more connected, not the more isolated. It's the opposite. Prayer does that. God also forgives us. Again, utilizing the plural form, we ask God for our forgiveness. If nothing else, that should tell us that plural form of forgiveness is that we don't just have forgiveness to seek for what I've done or what I've failed to do, but also what we've done and what we've failed to do. Or if you please, sin is not merely an individualistic issue, it's a systematic one. This is not a, this is not a very popular idea for many people today, but Jesus has been saying it for 2,000 years. I don't know why we've been surprised. He's been saying sin is a systematic and communal issue ever since he showed up in real space, in real time, ever since the incarnation. See, as sinners, when we join forces to create systems and structures and com companies, and yes, even churches, we therefore bear the sinful capacity to build something that's broken, to protective, to think we all got together, we made sure there was no sin in this thing, and now we can just be really a happy family, right? Church in the square, we have no sin. We have nothing to repent of. Why? Because we did it in community. And we have great papers written about these things, right? It's all in the light. Y'all, we're going to be asking Jesus for forgiveness as long as he gives church in the square breath. Right? And it's the second that we believe we have nothing to confess as an organization or as a church family that our most egregious sin will be committed. We seek forgiveness together. That's what's exposing. But here's the healing. When we confess systematic or communal, or generational sin, he is just as faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
the promise that is true for your soul is true for our organizations, our systems, and our churches. What a promise. Can you imagine if the healing effect that that would have on a church that begins to confess willingly when we have messed up, when we have not walked in the light, when we have committed sins of omission together? I think we've been learning this in our five-year journey. What does it look like to not just be a people who confess one to another, but as a church family that says, we've missed the mark on this. We've missed the mark in relating to our neighbors and loving our neighbors as we should. We've missed the mark in making sure that the full expression of God's image is demonstrated in our leadership, in the way that we write group curriculum, in the way that we think about worship, in the way that we select songs. In all of these things, we want to make sure we're reflecting the heart of God, not the culture that we prefer. I think God would forgive us. He'd cleanse us and he'd bring justice. Lastly, we pray that God protects us. Finally, Jesus invites us to pray through our spiritual vulnerabilities, and he does it in two ways. First, that we lack the power to resist temptation on our own. This is the first thing we have to confess in prayer, not just, again, individually, but together. Second, we are already gripped by the power of evil. This is in verse 13. Notice notice how he puts this. And lead us not into temptation. Why? Because left to ourselves, we will go to temptation, right? And deliver us from evil. Why? Because we're already trapped in it. So these are the two things that we're always wrestling with in terms of needing protection and needing the Lord to step in and graciously bring us kingdom healing. And so when we ask for God's healing, then from the impulse to sin and also from the bondage of sin, God, keep me from sinning anymore, and God, keep me from the ramifications, the, implication, uh, the implications and the addictions that I'm already in the middle of. We do both. See, that's, that's what's exposing. Therefore, in prayer, we pray to our Heavenly Father, and why do we go to Him in the midst of all these vulnerabilities? Because He doesn't have either of them. Because our Heavenly Father is not tempted, He's never drawn to sin, nor is He bound up in sin. So He is freed from sin, therefore, what? He can free you. Too many times we look to people who have the same addictions, the same problems, and the same temptations as we do to liberate us from something and they can't do it. Or we look to money or we look to possessions. We look to all kinds of things to free us and they can free you. He points us to the one who is ours. So that's what Jesus points us to. He points us to our Heavenly Father. He points us to the one who is ours, the one who is in heaven, the one who is Father, the one who is holy, the one who forgives us, the one who protects us, the the one who provides for us. In many ways, I think that's really the simple point of prayer. It's being with that God. It's being with one like that. And this also has an effect on us. See, I think it has this twofold effect. There is this internal and external effect. We might say that Jesus' prayer heals us inwardly and invites us to participate in the healing of the world always. I'm always receiving healing and I'm being healed so that I can be an agent of healing in the world. I think we have a tendency often of choosing that my prayer life is one or the other. I'm a, I'm a prayer person that just gets out and gets after people. And others, I'm just a prayer person. I receive the Lord's healing and that's, that's kind of it. it. But it's both. It's both communion and kingdom, Dr. Keller continues to point out in his book. He says that we should not drive a wedge between seeking personal communion with God and seeking the advancement of his kingdom in, the, in hearts and in the world. If they are kept together, then communion will not just be worldless mystical awareness on the one hand, and our petitions will not be a way of procuring God's favor on the other. In other words, what? Prayer won't be vain and empty. Prayer won't be vain and empty. Prayer is communion with God, and prayer is kingdom work. That means that when we say, I will pray for you, 
or even thoughts and prayers in time of crisis and grief. If we truly mean that, if we truly mean, I'm about to go before the God of the universe and speak your name and, and bring up what's going on in your life or bring up what is the prevailing evil of this world, to beseech him, to be with him, to be healed by him and be used as an agent of healing in this world. If that's what we mean, that is the greatest act of kindness and power imaginable. If that's what we mean. It's not vain and it is not empty. Seeking our healing and the healing of others. And that's precisely how Jesus teaches us to pray. Just before his betrayal, Jesus did just that. He prayed for you. He prayed for me. He prayed for us. He prayed that we would be perfectly one. He prayed communion and kingdom. He speaks to his Father. He is with his Father in John 17. He says, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Notice, before he gives his life as a ransom for the world, he's simply with his Father. He brings up our name. He speaks intimacy with love that he shares with his Father, but he also prays for us. He communes with his Father, but he seeks our good in his kingdom. He asked the Father to bring us together in harmony to make us one. The reason he asks his Father this is he wants his kingdom to cling. Communion cautions us not to pray vain and empty prayers. Instead, we pray prayers of healing, communion, and kingdom. And we're meant to do this with spiritual integrity. This is how he concludes his instruction on prayer. He brings it back to forgiveness. Look at Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, at first blush, this seems like Jesus is saying, you better forgive people or God's not going to forgive you. I understand that. It's a, it's a sort of a plain reading of the text. But this can't be true. The entire sermon to this point has spoken to his disciples as people who are blessed, as people who are salt and light and invited to be participants in his kingdom project. In other words, as people who have already been forgiven, as people who have already been included into the family and the work of God. And so Jesus, what Jesus must be talking about is integrity. Those who are forgiven by the Father demonstrate this grace by forgiving others. Or conversely, as Bible teacher Leon Morris says, to fail to forgive others is to demonstrate that one has not felt the saving touch of God. This is what it looks like. This makes sense. After all, Jesus begins his teaching by denouncing what? Hypocrisy. He began this whole teaching on prayer by denouncing hypocrisy. He begins by cautioning us about the vain and empty prayers of this religious class. He ends with the wholeness of healing. One who has been forgiven forgives. One who forgives is forgiven. We pray with integrity when we pray as those who are forgiven, not as a means to achieve grace, but as a demonstration that we have already received it. We pray with integrity when we pray as if the Heavenly Father is a generous forgiver. We should be skeptical, I think, of thoughts and prayers that lack integrity, that embody hypocrisy. We should be repulsed by that in ourselves and in others. Mere sentiment does not bring kingdom healing. 
Simply thinking happy thoughts and wishing people well does nothing. However, we should be deeply grateful and full participants in a prayer life which is made whole in Christ through communion and kingdom, a prayer life rooted not in our habits, but in the holy God, our Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's such good news that we get to call you that. We do ask for your forgiveness. Prayer often becomes just another thing we do, vain and empty. The practice has no meaning if it is not directed, grounded, and anchored in the character of the God who created, sustains, and redeems all things. And so would you put on the experience your healing work, and we would get to participate in the kingdom of Jesus that is bringing healing to Logan Square, to the city of Chicago, to this country, and to this world. So we simply say, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.